Welcome to this edition of the Gateway Podcast. Thanks for connecting with us. To discover more about our faith community, feel free to visit our website, gatewaychurch.org.nz. May this message be an encouragement to you. Well, thank you so much for coming back. I'm both glad and surprised. Because last Sunday I started a series called The God You Should Know. And uh, it's, uh, we're talking about God's attributes, the things that go together in a sense to make up God's personality, to make God who, who he is. And to be truthful, it's an incredibly difficult, if not somewhat presumptuous task. As Paul said when he was talking about spiritual things, he said it's, it's like peering into the mist and squinting into a fog. At the same time, the venture is incredibly important because your conception of God, how you think about God, will powerfully shape the kind of person that you're becoming. And the answer to the question, how do you see God, uh, will affect your thinking and thereby your behavior, ultimately your character and potentially your destiny. So it's incredibly important that we do the very best we can to think well and truly about God's character and about his attributes. And so I began last Sunday looking at God's sovereignty. And God's sovereignty has to do with his power, his rule, how he exercises dominion. He rules over things in heaven and earth. He alone, the Bible says, exercises ultimate dominion. Now, all Orthodox Christians affirm that God is sovereign. But what I did last Sunday night is pointed out that scholars differ over how that sovereignty is outworked, what that sovereignty actually looks like, um, if I can say it this way, in shoes. And it's, very, it's a very difficult subject. So if you're new or if you're here with a friend and you've actually never ever made a commitment to Jesus, there will be a lot of things that I say tonight that will be uh, hard for you to understand. And I'm sorry about that. Um, I pray that just even one thing might strike you as being interesting or there might be one question that arises or you may just well be um, bored. Reminds me of a story um, where uh, an announcement was made that the church board should meet after after the meeting and uh, the members of the board came and gathered and there was a kind of a random guy standing around and somebody asked him, what are you doing? Uh, why are you here? And he said, well, they said there'd be a meeting of the church board, and if there's anyone here more bored than me, I'd like to meet them. <laughs> so it might well be that you fit in that category. I hope you can get something out of it. Um, we, I talked last week about Reformed theology, and Reformed scholars, of whom there are many and, uh, and godly ones, hold a, an idea of God's sovereignty that involves God exercising meticulous control over absolutely everything, down to the last speck of dust, down to the very last molecule. And they would say there is absolutely nothing that he does not directly or indirectly control. The Westminster Confession, which is a confession regarding Reformed theology, says this, God from all eternity did freely and unchangingly ordain whatever comes to pass. So Reformed theologians say God is the all-determining reality. God gets whatever God wants. That's what it means for God to be God, and that's what it means for God to be sovereign. 
I tried to point out last week that, that thinking about this isn't just arcane theological mumbo-jumbo that nobody is interested in. The answer to the questions that we have about God's sovereignty uh, outworked in us in a dramatic way, particularly in really difficult times or times when we face tragedy or times of evil. When we ask questions like, why did God allow, or where was God when, or why didn't God stop, we are asking God's sovereignty questions. And God's sovereignty is where the rubber meets the road for many of us when we strike hard times. And how you answer that question may well determine whether you remain in the faith during times of stress and trouble. I know countless people who have walked away from faith angry with God because he didn't work sovereignly in the manner that they anticipated based on the way they understood how God's sovereignty should work. So it's really important to think well about this if we're able to. I spoke last week about the fact that the reformed view of God's sovereignty is the idea that he's planned every single detail in life in general for the whole world and in particular for you and for me. And he's done this planning in the secret councils of God before eternity, before he even created the world. Reformed scholars say there were these decrees that God made about things in general and things in particular. And quite frankly, there is enough in Scripture and, and in tradition that leans in that direction. It is a widespread view. It is held by good and godly scholars. It is not easily dismissed. However, as I said last week, that view creates some massive difficulties for me and for many others as well. And last week I talked about two of those difficulties. Number one... Uh, surrounds the whole issue of your freedom, of free will. Now, if God preordained uh, the way things would be before the foundation of the world, then surely the idea of free will is an illusion. And if that's true, that creates massive issues surrounding moral responsibility. If I'm not free, if I've been pre-programmed, as it were, if I've been preordained, then how can I be held responsible for my actions? No human court would convict a man for an action he had been pre-programmed by an outside force to commit. And so if you embrace uh, this all uh, controlling sovereignty of reformed theology, you've got an issue over free will. And the second is related to the first, and it concerns the origins and responsibility for evil and sin. If God decreed and preordained all things in his secret councils, how and where does sin and evil fit into the plan? Now, reformed scholars will say God did decree sin and evil, but men are responsible and are guilty for carrying it out. My observation last week was surely ultimate responsibility lies with ultimate cause. Now, I won't go back over those. They are massive issues, and they cause huge debate among theologians. I want to talk about another hurdle that prevents me from uh, embracing Reformed theology uh, and God's all-controlling sovereignty, and it's, it's about unconditional election. Difficult term, and maybe you've heard of it before, or perhaps you haven't. Sometimes it's just called predestination. Sometimes people call it particular redemption or purposeful atonement. So unconditional election or predestination. And it's a very confronting, uh, it's a very confronting concept, and in order to explain it to you, I'm going to quote from John Calvin, the great reformer um, of, of um, the, the 
Protestant Reformation, and, and he said this, okay? By predestination, we mean the eternal decree of God by which he determined with himself whatever he wished to happen with regard every man. All are not created on equal terms, but some are preordained to eternal life, others to damnation. Regarding the lost, it was his good pleasure to doom to destruction. Since the disposition of all things is in the hand of God and he can give life or death at his pleasure, he dispenses and ordains by his judgment that some from their mother's womb are destined irrevocably to eternal death in order to glorify his name in their perdition. Wow. And in case you didn't get Calvin's drift, let me quote from the Westminster Confession. The rest of mankind, God was pleased according to the unsearchable counsel of his own will, whereby he extendeth or withholdeth mercy as he pleased for the glory of his sovereign power over his creatures to pass by and to ordain them to dishonor and wrath for their sin to the praise of his glorious justice. Now, in case you didn't get that drift, let me just say, Reformed theology says before the foundation of the world, God ordained some to eternal bliss and ordained, ordained some to be, to be eternally damned. The ones who are chosen to, for eternal bliss are called the elect. The ones that are chosen for eternal damnation are called the reprobate. So let me say it as bluntly as I dare. The reprobate are those humans who, before they even existed, were chosen by God to spend eternity in hell for sins that God ordained they would commit. And before you laugh, cry, or swear, and just dismiss it as absurd, I, I want to challenge you. Most of you, I suspect, are disciples of the Lord Jesus Christ, and thereby you are committed to the truth of the Scriptures. However difficult or unpalatable they might seem at times, what saith the Scriptures is our final court of appeal. Don't resort to a, well, that's not fair kind of argument. If we reject the biblical truth on the basis of what we might imagine to be fair, we will be in trouble very quickly. We are historically situated creatures and the standards of fairness change with time and place. And we need something a little more solid to base our faith on than some cultural setting, that, uh, our cultural setting which deems what's fair and what's unfair. So don't cry, that's not fair. Calvin had an answer for people who uh, cried that in his time. He said, God doesn't answer to your standards of fairness. Foolish man who contends with God. Now, as I said, there is enough material in Scripture and tradition that leans exactly to what I have just said. That God has a preordained plan for all and that he's determined some for life and some for death. Let me read to you a couple of these passages of Scripture. Buckle your seats. Okay? Romans chapter 9. I chose to bless Jacob, but not Esau. And God said this before the children were even born, before they had done anything good or bad. This proves that God was doing what he had decided from the beginning. It was not because of what the children did, but because of what God wanted and chose. Was God being unfair? Of course not. 
For God had said to Moses, if I want to be kind to somebody, I will. And I will take pity on anyone I want to. And so God's blessings are not given just because someone decides to have them or works hard to get them. They are given because God takes pity on those he wants to. Pharaoh, king of Egypt, was an example of this fact. For God told him he had given him the kingdom of Egypt for the very purpose of displaying the awesome power of God against him so that all the world would hear about God's glorious name. So you see, God is kind to some just because he wants to be and he makes some refuse to listen. Well then, why does God blame them for not listening? Haven't they just done what he made them to do? No, don't say that. Who are you to criticize God? Sounds like Martin Luther, or, or John Calvin, rather. Should the thing made say to the one who made it, why have you made me like this? When a man makes a jar out of clay, doesn't he have the right to use the same lump of clay to make one jar beautiful to be used for holding flowers and another to throw garbage into? Does not God have a perfect right to show his fury and power against those who are fit only for destruction, those who he has been patient with for all this time? And he has the right to take others such as ourselves who have been made for pouring into the riches of his glory into whether we are Jews or Gentiles and to be kind to us so that everyone can see how very great his glory is. My goodness, you read that and you think, I want to go to read the Psalms. Uh, you know, I'll read the Proverbs. This is, this is hard material. John Piper commented on this passage. He said, Romans 9 is like a tiger going around devouring free willers like you and me. Here's two more passages. Acts chapter 13, verse 48. Now when the Gentiles heard this, they were glad and glorified the word of the Lord, and as many as had been appointed to eternal life believed. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 8. A stone of stumbling, a rock of offense. They stumble, being disobedient to the word to which they were also appointed. Now it seems, as you read these scriptures, that some are appointed to life and some are appointed to stumble. And it's passages like that and others that convince people that the reformed view of God's sovereignty must be correct. The idea of reprobates being created in order to be damned, if that doesn't make you cringe at least a little, perhaps you should check your pulse. Even John Calvin said of this, this is a terrible doctrine. But he said, I cannot refute it. It is in the Bible. And therefore, though it is unpalatable, let God be God. Now, there are some Reformed scholars who want to kind of soften the idea of God predestinating people to hell. So they say, no, it's, it's a single predestination. God predestinates people to heaven and to eternal bliss. He does not predestine the others to hell. He simply passes them by on the way to saving the elect. And I want to shrug my shoulders and say, isn't that just verbal sleight of hand? You know, I mean, isn't effectively that the same thing? Uh, it reminds me of the parable of the Good Samaritan. Remember the man who fell among thieves and was left half dead on the road. The Levi came and passed him by. The priest came and passed him by. And, and uh, you know, what, what they did was wicked. They passed somebody by that needed help. And James says, when you know to do good and don't do it, it's sin. And I, and I want to ask the question, well, isn't it for God? If he, on the way to helping somebody, passes others by that he has the capacity to help, but he chooses not to, is he exempt from, from the scriptures? Is he exempt from his own laws, as it were? And it's a rhetorical question. For me, the answer is no. To claim that predestination only applies to the elect, but not to the reprobate, 
you can't separate those things. That's, that's nonsensical to me. When you have choos- cho- chosen some, you have not chosen others. Up implies down. Back implies front. Wet implies dry. And chosen implies not chosen. So double predestination. The predestination of the elect and the predestination of the reprobate is not extreme reformed theology. It's consistent reformed theology. And it follows logically and inevitably. Now, for me to accept that everyone who has ever lived, including you and I, will be sent to eternal bliss or eternal damnation based on some inscrutable, unconditional decree of God before we were even born is a mountain too high to climb. And I reject it, not based on some sense of outraged fairness, although I feel that too. I reject it on the basis of what I believe the scripture says about the character of God. And I, and I want to show you, does that idea of predestination and unconditional election square with the scriptural revelation that God is love? In what sense can we actually confidently claim God is good and that he's love when we believe that he creates in order to damn? Let me, let me pose for you a terrible question. How do you distinguish between Satan and God? The answer is Satan wants all people to be damned. God, it seems, only wants some people to be damned. And that should be so jarring as to be blasphemous. Let's turn to the scripture for another perspective on God's sovereignty and on election. Isaiah 45, verse 22. Turn to me and be saved all the ends of the earth, for I am God and there is no other. Matthew chapter 18. What do you think? If a man has a hundred sheep and one of them gets lost, will he not leave the 99 on the mountain and go in search of the one that is lost? And if it turns out that he finds it, I assure you and most solemnly say to you, he rejoices over it more than the 99 that did not get lost. So it is not the will of your Father who is in heaven that one of these little ones be lost. Matthew chapter 28 verse 19. Go therefore and make disciples of all the nations. Mark 16, 15. Go into the world and preach the gospel to every creature. Acts 17, 30. Truly these times of ignorance God overlooked, but now commands all men everywhere to repent. John 3, 16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. Hebrews chapter 2 verse 9. But we see Jesus who was made a little lower than the angels for the suffering of death, crowned with glory and honor that he, by the grace of God, might taste death for everyone. 2 Peter 3 9. The Lord is not slack concerning his promises, as some count slackness, but is long-suffering toward us, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. And 1 John chapter 2, verse 2, And he himself is the propitiation for our sins, and not only for, our, not, uh, for ours only, but also for the whole world. Now, whosoever, the world, everyone, any, all, all men everywhere, That is the gracious invitation of Scripture and of Jesus himself, and it's universal in scope. How can can you reduce that all to some? Now, Reformed scholars come back and they would say, well, all in those passages means all the elect, and that God wants all kinds of people from every tribe, nation, and tongue. He doesn't mean all. 
He just means all the elect. Well, I'm sorry, but all means all. And God loves all and has done everything he can to save all. And there is absolutely no scriptural foundation for an assertion that all doesn't mean all. And to suggest that there's some kind of distinction between these plain statements and the secret decrees of God suggests that God's duplicitous. That, that he's saying, he's talking out both sides of his mouth at the same time. He's saying one thing, but he actually is planning another. If predestination and unconditional election is correct, then the gospel is not a genuine call to all, but only to some. And terms like whoever, everyone, men, everywhere are completely devoid of authenticity. If it's true, then the offer to all is somehow constrained and limited by these hidden counsels and hidden purposes of God. And God's heart and hand appears to reach out to everybody, but with the hidden design only to hold the elect. How does that not impugn his character? If there is a fire in a dormitory and somebody rushes in and saves five of the 30 people when actually they could have saved the whole 35, how would we not question the integrity and the, everything about that person? When you could save all but choose not to, how does that not impugn your character? And I'd like to suggest to you that not only does this doctrine of predestined uh, election not only you cannot reconcile it with God's plain invitation to all, most importantly, you cannot reconcile it with the person of Jesus. We know that God was fully revealed in Jesus. To see Jesus is to see God. He is the supreme revelation of God's character. The Bible says in John 1:18 that he came and declared the Father's heart. The Greek has the idea of doing an exegesis. He broke open the Father's heart to show us what God was like. He says to Philip, if you've seen me, Philip, you've seen the Father. In Colossians, it says he's the image of the invisible God. And in Hebrews, it says he's the express image of his person. You see Jesus, you see God. Michael Ramsey said, God is Christ-like and in him is no unchrist-likeness at all. And Brennan Manning says, all our prevailing images and understanding of God must crumble in the earthquake of Jesus' self-disclosure. Everything we know about God must submit to that which is revealed in Jesus. We need to be ruthlessly Christocentric in our theology. God the Father would never do anything that God the Son would find morally reprehensible. And I want to suggest to you that if you can't find some supposed attribute of God in the person of Jesus, you ought to think twice before you claim to have found it in God. Martin Luther actually talked about a hidden aspect of God. He called it Deus Absconditus. There was standing in Jesus' shadow something of God that Jesus didn't quite reveal. And he had to have a hidden God because there was no way that he could square Jesus with the God who preordained people to eternal damnation for his own glory. Jesus is the one supremely motivated by the love of God who goes out like the good shepherd into the darkness of the night to save the one, leaving the 99 behind. Now, Reformed scholars talk about God being supremely motivated uh, by his desire for self-glorification. Self I, I struggle over that for a start. 
I don't know about you, but my mum used to tell me, it's not all about you, Donald. You know, you're getting too big for your britches. It's not all about you. Don't be a narcissist. It's not all about you. And when I hear about God being really, really interested in only his glory, I, I have to ask this kind of dark question. Is he a narcissistic black hole that sort of sucks everything into him? I struggle with that. I want to counter and say, listen, if God is interested in his glory, his glory is his love, and he's not sucking everything into him, he's throwing everything out with bounty and with grace and with mercy and with kindness. If you want to talk about God's glory, then I'm, I'm with Miroslav Volf, the theologian who said, we don't have to give up on the idea that God seeks God's glory. We just need to say that God's glory, which is God's very being, is love. You know, Reformed theologians seem to have an ambivalent relationship with this idea of God's love being the core fundamental of his being and not self-glorification. Um, it's interesting that in the monumental work of John Calvin called The Institutes of Christian Religion, which is like 1,500 pages, he does not once quote God is love. And you do have to ask, isn't that something of an oversight? When you are talking about the basics of, of Christianity. Some Reformed scholars bluntly assert that God does not love everybody. A.W. Pink. When we say that God is sovereign in the exercise of his love, we mean that God loves the elect that he chooses. God does not love everybody. Man, I want to choke on that. I mean, I mean no. Some say, well, Don, you know, that's extreme Calvinism. And the softer Calvinists would say, he does love everybody, but he loves us in different ways. Okay, what does that look like? Well, there's the providential love of God. That's where God has created a beautiful world for everybody, and the sun shines on the just and the unjust, and the rain falls on the just and the unjust, and we have beautiful sunsets and beautiful music, and, and he loves everybody providentially. But then he especially loves the elect. John Piper, again, a Reformed scholar, says, um, God deeply loves those he has chosen for damnation. But even though he has compassion toward them, he has greater purposes, and those purposes are incompatible with saving those he's chosen to damn. And I'm going to go, I'm not so sure that I want to be loved like that. I, I, I can't see different kinds of love. Yes, God providentially loves all, but God loves all. God so loved the world, the Bible says. And to say that he has a love for the elect and a providential love for the damned, and I'm sorry, although I feel deep compassion for you, my purposes for self-glorification are more important than you being saved. It's to impugn his character in my view. People who are reformed say that he has to have people to be damned because there has to be the full orbed display of his glory and he needs people uh, uh, to be damned so that he can show um, his wrath against sin. We need, we need an illustration throughout eternity of how sin make God's, makes God angry and so therefore we need the damned. And I want to put my hand up and say, but, but didn't the cross do that? 
Didn't we, we have an eternal reminder of a lamb freshly slain standing in the midst of the worshipping hordes of heaven. Aren't we reminded that the freshly slain lamb is an indication eternally of God's hatred for sin? We, we don't need people in hell for all eternity to see God's hatred for sin. All we have to do is look at the slain lamb who took it for you and I. You say, well, Don Moore, that's, that's fine, but what, what do you say about the passages that you read before? Because, man, they seem to be saying that God really has preordained people for life or death. How, how do you explain those? Well, I did warn you, this is really challenging. Okay? Um, let me ask you a question. Have you heard of a blick? Do you know what a blick is? I don't mean a bick, not a bick pen. I mean a blick. Nobody? A blick is one of those pictures where you're not quite sure whether it's a duck or a rabbit. All right? A blick is one of those pictures where, is that a young woman or is that an old woman? And some people can see the young woman and say, no, it's this young woman. No, no, it's not. Can't you see the old woman? I was going to put a picture up there, but I thought if I did that, that would be the end of the sermon. And you'd be arguing for the rest of our time. Can't you see the young woman, you idiot? And probably some of you will be doing that without the picture. A blick is an interpretive lens, okay? And that's why some people can read the Bible and see determinism and Calvinism and God's all-controlling sovereign, uh, sovereignty and his commitment to self-glorification, while others, like me, can read the Bible and see free will theism, God's self-giving sovereignty in which his love is more fundamental than his glory, and that his glory in, in fact, is his love. And I'm committed to that latter view, we say, well, Don, what do you do with the scriptures that seem to say otherwise? I just ignore them. No, sorry. <laughs> no, I don't. You, gotta, you can't do that, you know. You've got to grapple with these things. Sometimes the scripture can be unpalatable. Our standard for truth is not fairness uh, according to our cultural standard. It's what does the Bible actually say? So very briefly, let me look at a couple of the passages that I talked about before. The one from Acts 13, verse 40, uh, 46 to 44, context is really, really important. It says, Then Paul and Barnabas boldly said, It was necessary that the word of God should be spoken to you first. But seeing you reject it and judge yourselves unworthy of eternal life. We're turning to the Gentiles. Now, friends, there's no eternal decree here. These people have been given the word and they have judged themselves unworthy of it by rejecting it. They made a choice. And so Paul and Barnabas say, so we turn to the Gentiles. And, and then it says, when the Gentiles heard this, they were glad and glorified the word of the Lord and all who were ordained to eternal life believe. Context of verse 46 is a choice people made to reject. And then in verse 48, we're supposed to believe that there's an eternal decree that people didn't have a choice about but were eternally preordained to accept and therefore be drawn into eternal life. And it's like, well, hang on, listen. If there's eternal decrees on one side, there has to be an eternal decree on the other. There's not an eternal decree with the reprobate here because they choose to reject. And without going into a lot of detail in the Greek, the, where it says those who believed, those who were ordained to believe, the, the idea in the Greek, um, it, it, it can be in the middle form or the passive form of the verb. And if it's in the middle form, 
Uh, sorry, if it's in the passive form, it does mean God ordained them to life. If it's in the um, middle form, it means they ordained themselves. They predisposed themselves. Now, here we have the blick. You can read it whichever way you want. But if these people chose not to accept and these people chose to accept, they predispose themselves to believe. And so we aren't dealing necessarily with the fact that in the eternal counsels of God, God preordained them to believe. It simply says these people rejected and these people, by virtue of being open to the word, predisposed themselves to embrace it. It doesn't have to be Calvinist. It doesn't have to be reformed. Then there's the other passage in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 8, where it says they stumbled because they were disobedient to the word to which they were also appointed. Again, I'll spare you the details of the Greek language, but simply to say this, do, this verse doesn't mean that their disobedience was ordained or preordained, but that the penalty for disobedience was. So let me read the J.B. Phillips version to it, which really captures the idea. It says, they stumble at the word of God, for in their hearts they're unwilling to obey it. That makes stumbling a foregone conclusion. The foregone conclusion wasn't that they are chosen to stumble, but you go down that road of disobedience and you'll stumble. That's the foregone conclusion. You choose that way, stumbling is appointed. Not you are chosen to go down that road. They're two totally different things. So in both those cases that look initially like, man, God has preordained some to life and others to damnation, doesn't necessarily mean that at all. Then we come to Romans 9. And Romans 9 needs a sermon all by itself. Permission not to panic, Mr. Mannering, because you're not going to get it. Okay. And I don't have the time to delve into it, but let me just make a couple of points generally about Romans chapter 9. It's talking about Esau and Jacob. Jacob I have loved. Esau, it says in the King James, I have hated. And you go, how does that work? While they were in their mother's womb. How does that work? Listen, when we are talking in that passage about Jacob and Esau, we're not talking about individuals. They are representative heads of a people. Jacob of Israel, Esau of the Edomites. And God is not saying, I hated them. In the same way that when Jesus said, hey, listen, unless you hate your mother and your father, you can't be my disciple. He wasn't preaching hate. He was just saying, you have to have your priorities correct. And in choosing Jacob over Esau, we're not talking about salvation we're talking about mission. The people of Israel were being set aside in the purposes of God for the mission of bearing the light, of the, uh, the light to the Gentiles and being the people through whom Jesus would ultimately come and be our Savior. We aren't talking about you're saved, you're damned. It's I'm choosing this group of people through whom to bring my purposes. This is about mission, not salvation. And, and election throughout the scriptures is nearly always corporate and very rarely individual. God chooses, chooses Israel. Within Israel, he chooses the priests. Is, 
Election is corporate. It's not about individuals. And it's about mission. It's not about salvation. And when you read Romans chapter 9 in that kind of way, it's not about a tiger going around eating up free willers and God has chosen some for salvation and some for damnation. It's about God choosing a people through whom his purposes would come and he chose Israel. He didn't choose the Edomites. That doesn't mean they can't be saved. The whole purpose of them being chosen was that the Gentiles would come to ultimate salvation. It's the means to the end. And again, you read Romans 9 like that and suddenly it changes. And you say, well, Don, what about, what about God saying, oh, oh, harden Pharaoh's heart? Go back to Exodus. You'll never find God hardening Pharaoh's heart until Pharaoh hardens his own. Pharaoh hardens his heart and then God says, you can have what you want. Since that's the way you're going to be, I will... Um, I, I, I will give you what you want. Hell isn't preordained for people. It's the ultimate monument to, to, to your free choice. People go to hell not because God sends them. They go to hell because that's what they've chosen. C.S. Lewis says there are two kinds of people in the world. Those that say to God, thy will be done, and those to whom God says, thy will be done. You want that? You can have it. It's the ultimate monument to free will. It's not about predestination. God doesn't preordain people to destruction and to hell. I'm sorry. We get to choose. God has created in his sovereignty a world whereby he shares his power and the power to choose with you and me. And he invites us into the wonderful dance of love that the Trinity has enjoyed for all eternity. And he says, I've created you and made you for that. But in order for you to love, you have to be able to choose. Love that's not chosen is not love. And in order to choose, you have not only the potential of saying yes to me, you also have the potential of saying no to me. That's the world, I believe, that God in his sovereignty has created. God is sovereign. There's no doubt about it. And he will ultimately have exactly what he said. For those of you who were here last week, remember the bell curve. God will have his ultimate purposes. Where you fit within those ultimate purposes is absolutely your choice. And perhaps you're here tonight and you've never made that choice. You say, well, Don, I've come with friends and, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm kind of open to the things of God, and I, but, I, but I've never made a choice. Listen, you can be open to salvation and never be saved. You can almost be persuaded. Almost persuaded is almost saved. Almost saved is completely lost. You have a choice to make. Now, you might not understand it all, but you have the choice to say yes to the one who loved you and planned for you to be part of that love for all eternity. It's up to you. It's your call. If you've never made that choice, you can make it tonight if you want to. Our prayer teams are going to be down here on my left. And if you think, okay, I, you know, I, I, I didn't understand everything you said, but I understood the fact that Jesus loves me. He's died in my place so that I can be free and I need to be free because, quite frankly, Don, I'm bound up. Well, you know, um, join the club. We've, we've, all, we've all known that, and we're all working our way to freedom by the grace of God and by the power of the Holy Spirit, and you can start that journey tonight if you'd like to. Thanks for listening. If you'd like to know more about our faith community, feel free to visit our website, gatewaychurch.org.nz.